Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. I'm going to be talking with Mr. John Ricketts today. John is an entrepreneur, and he's the co-founder of a company called Writerly, and with their first product out recently called Ecom, and we're going to jump right into it. It's based on some artificial intelligence, some natural language processing, so you know that's right up my alley. And you listeners that have reached out to me and followed me now for a while, I know that's something that you're going to be interested in as well. John is not only uh, an entrepreneur and a businessman that I'm excited to talk to, but he's also a friend. I consider him a colleague, and he's a man of many talents with a background that includes medical devices, and he has a knack for innovation and a passion for making life better, one venture at a time. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Bob. Great to be here and really looking forward to having a conversation about all of these topics with you today. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fun. I'm really, I've been looking forward to this. So you're coming to us, the human on the other side, the human voice on the other side of the microphones coming to us from where, where are you located? I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, which as you know, about two and a half hours east of, of Riderly headquarters in downtown Nashville. Yeah. That's awesome. So can you walk us through the origin story of Riderly? What originally sparked the idea and what challenges did you face leading up to it? I want to hear your origin story uh, in the middle of that too, but I'm really curious, like where does a AI-based startup in Nashville from a guy who lives in Knoxville, that's really, really unique because as you and I both know, AI startups come from the West Coast. They don't come from Tennessee. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You even missed our Brooklyn office. Oh yeah. I, sorry. Brooklyn. That, Brooklyn as well. <laughs> they don't come from there either. <laughs> well, I'll throw one more curveball. So Riderly was actually founded in London in the UK. Okay. So a bit about the origin story. It was early in 2022. Uh, and I had the opportunity to to get more than just a cursory view at what GPT-3 was was doing at that time. And I've been following the GPT pathway for about the past 30 months, I would say. And early in 2022, I finally had the chance to, to dedicate a lot of time to, you know, take a, take a hard look to see, hey, what are the real use cases here? And, and mind you, this is nine months before ChatGPT had, had been announced. And it didn't take long to spend time on a platform. And at, at that time, commercially available tools for were Jasper, you know, WriteSonic, Copy, AI, and Writerly was just being born. But it, it didn't take you know, a genius to say, hey, this is a really novel tool that has significant implications on potentially how we work, how we create. It was very exciting to see. And so we began working. I had a technical co-founder that was in London at the time. And we began working on a beta product to say, hey, can we create some APIs that will allow us to sort of live at this application layer, which at the application layer, you build software that enables an end user person to access sort of a deeper fundamental layer of, of technology, which are the foundation models inside of AI. So we did that and it was a very good working beta model. 
invited a closed group of, of people to come on and, and test. And the more time that I spent in it, the more it became evident that there's real scale here, but it also became more evident that AI was not going to be this tool that took jobs and this tool that that sought to replace people. It was it was an enhancement tool, but really at its core, you know, what Riderly is, is, is just software. And we all use software in our day-to-day. This was just a slightly different type of software, probably closer to what the calculator was to the abacus. Mm-hmm. And then what people are are speculating on on what AI is going to turn into from a negative perspective. So fast forward through through last summer up until November, we we refined the product. We invited a few more people to come on. And then we we in November of 22, we made a concerted effort to do a limited commercial launch and invited beta platform users. We finished 2022, our goal was to hit 20,000 users on December by December 31. And we hit our 20,000th user at 10.19 p.m. Eastern time on December 31. And so that was an incredible milestone for our team to hit. Now, a lot of people may be saying 20,000 users, that's not a very large cohort, and I would completely agree. But from a statistical significance perspective and, and the limited basis that we were sort of pursuing this on, it was a monumental achievement for us. So we then took the took the governors off and and went into 2023 this year with a, a hyper growth plan. And by and large, we've we've done that. We've acquired just under 700,000 users over the past nine months, eight months. And we continue to add about 100,000 new users a month, which is a, a very good cadence of user growth for us. But more importantly, it allows us to invite users onto our platform to explore the different templates, to explore the different use cases. And then we get to take sort of an inside look at what's getting used. And then we sort of treat Riderly as our research and development arm because there are certain templates that get more usage than others. And then we look at those templates and look at the data and say, hey, how can we make this particular template or use case better? And that's what we did with our first true sort of hyper-vertical product inside the e-commerce sector with e-com. And we moved away from, from a horizontal generative AI copywriting text enabler tool to more of a sales and SEO enhancement tool for people mm. selling digitally. Mm. And I've had the chance, obviously, to to play with both Writerly and Ecom and working alongside of you in so many of these projects. I'm just amazed at how you've taken something that is, if you look at it from like a, a funnel perspective, you, you've got Writerly and the messaging app, the, the the writing tool. And then from that, which a lot of people are familiar with. But like you said, it's almost like that's your test bed and that's the service that you give. And out of that, you're able to then create a product that you see is more refined. But actually, it's not just taking and like saying, here's some pre-built templates, but you've actually created a whole new product out of it. And so can you walk us through a little bit how you make the... I wouldn't say it's a pivot. It's more of an addition to focus on e-commerce product 
which is called Ecom, E-K-O-M. What market needs or opportunities did you see? And then how did that evolve out of Riderly? While Riderly is still going, you've got Ecom spinning out. Talk about that process a little bit. Yeah, so it became very evident for us that the real opportunity was inside of product descriptions. And that's where Ecom was born, you know, four or five, six months ago when we really started to look at product descriptions in earnest. And we coupled that with some conversations with, you know, the, you always like to receive input from straight from the voice of customer. And these were some large European brands that were a result of our attendance at a conference over in London back in March. And the real opportunity and what we were surprised to see was, number one, if you're selling online, your product data pages are very important. These are the digital breadcrumbs and, and the words that are on your product data pages are the digital breadcrumbs that allow search traffic to find your products online. And what became very evident was that traditional SEO practices and disciplines that were managed by teams of people or perhaps by just one person or no one left a lot to be desired from the brand perspective. So what does that mean? So if you are selling products online, you treat the search volume and the search traffic as evidence of demand in the marketplace. Mm. Your products are evidence of potential supply, okay? So we're a supply and demand enabler from an e-commerce perspective. And so what we can do is we can measure the real-time high-frequency search data coming through Google, coming through Amazon, coming through Bing, really inside of any CMS, both headed or headless marketplace. And we can dynamically optimize through natural language processing your product pages to match the demand in real time. So right now, most sellers have static product pages. They, they rarely change. Mm. Maybe they change once a year to include a hot new keyword organic or you know something to that effect. What we're saying, and, and what less about what we're saying, what the data says is that these product pages should change dynamically to match what people are looking for. Yep. That's a lot of sense. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. And so we began exploring what would it look like to build a a software that that utilized artificial intelligence and more appropriately natural language processing and combine it with leading trusted data sources that mm. told us what people were looking for and then simply modularly impacted the existing copy from that digital storefront. And it's been, it's been an incredible product build. We've had some fantastic reception. We've got brands at the enterprise level, to the SMB level that we're onboarding right now. But what it what it was a result of was we looked at the data coming from the writerly product description generator template. And we said, there's a great deal of interest here. You know, why is that? Why are people using it? Because at its core, if you use ChatGPT or you use writerly or another AI writing tool to generate a product description, that's great. You can do that and you can do it quickly. But if you have 10,000 products in your catalog, that's still somewhat of a manual process. And, right. and you know, it's, it's very difficult. So 
not only did we want to automate the, the optimization of your existing text, but then we wanted to pair it with real-time surveillance and, and come to market with a product that said, hey, not only do we have analytics and insights, but we can self-repair and we can dynamically optimize at the same time. And I think what you see in e-commerce is a lot of software sells data and insights. You can, you can throw a rock and hit two companies in any large city that are selling data and insights. And then it's incumbent upon, you know, the purchaser of, of that data to then take action. Mm. But we feel like that that's only, it's, it's a little bit disingenuous, particularly because software and also AI has the ability to not only say, hey, here's the data insights, but we can fix this for you right now. And, and that's where we want to live. And that was a result of, of just really paying attention to the data from Riderly. Yeah, the... The example and the thought that I always go back to, my career is, is in digital marketing and data and strategy and DTC as well as B2B type environments, business to business, direct to consumer. And one of the things that, that has always been counterintuitive to me is I've always said that, and this is a life principle, John, that I think you agree with us too, is like, if you put crap and junk in, you're going to get crap and junk out. And, and that's the, that's a truism to our physical bodies. It's a truism to our relationships. It's a truism to, to, you can apply it to almost anything, garbage in, garbage out. Right. And, and when it comes to the digital marketing e-commerce world, it's almost like We've gotten so used to, and, and the analogy in the physical world and in medicine and in our health, we've gotten so used to sitting on the couch, not exercising, eating junk food, that we've just, everybody has said, well, this is just the way it is, and this is just the way it's going to be. So let's build an industry about like how to help people deal with all their ailments, and we'll create all these tools and products for survival and just living the best way you can while you sit on the couch, eat junk food and not exercise. And, it, and I liken that to the e-commerce world. It's like, let's just get as much traffic. Let's get as much people coming to our websites. And when we get all this stuff in here, then come buy all of our data products and all our tools and we'll help you sort out the best in that rather than going, Let's rethink this and let's like, let's put good visitors, targeted visitors, quality visitors in the top of the funnel and you'll get more really good stuff out at the bottom, i.e. sales and conversions. And to me, that's a very simple way of saying that's really what e-com does. That's their mission is we're not going to compete with all kinds of different tools out there that are driving traffic, paid ads. All those things are great but we're going to bring your targeted customer because when they search for something, they're going to see your product and that's the best customer. That's the highest quality. That's the good quality food that you're putting into your system. Would you agree with that? hundred percent. I yeah. think it's, we've nailed it. We've, and I think it's sort of an indictment on, on lifestyle today where convenience and ease are prioritized over outcome. And we're trying to reframe the conversation to say, no, 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 you can have the positive outcome while also having the convenience and ease, right? Mm -hmm. It's more about, you know, we, we, we refer to the 
paid traffic, the inorganic traffic as synthetic traffic. All right. It's it's traffic like, but from a search intent perspective, the visitors are being served targeted ads that have been bought and paid for, but don't necessarily reflect what the user search intent truly was. Now, is there value in paid? Absolutely. When we are not here to, to debate or say we are fully in line that the paid strategies are very good strategies. However, the data is irrefutable that your organic non-synthetic traffic is a thousand percent more likely to buy than an inorganic visitor. Exactly. So what happens when you fill your top of funnel with inorganic synthetic traffic is that you have to work five, 10, 20 times as hard down funnel to, to engage, convert, and, and to drive revenue to that visitor. And what we're saying is you don't have to do that. You're, you're, you're working too hard right now for the minimal return. If you start mm -hmm. up a funnel and you drive higher quality, higher volume, higher quality traffic, those down funnel processes become much, much easier. And the results are remarkable from our internal case studies to our early e-com users. We're able to show attribution that starts on the organic search side mm. and flows right through the bottom of the funnel. And so in a way, it's kind of like putting Drano into a clogged sink. You know, that's what we want to help. That's what we want to help brands do. And we can do that and we can do it uh, conveniently and easily. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I could geek out all day on this, but for the purposes of our listeners, I, I think it would be really helpful to like zoom out just a little bit. And I want to ask you this question, because I think we have a lot of business people that are listening. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the e-commerce industry, what would it be and why? Wow, that's a really good question. The magic wand, and I get one thing to change. About the e-commerce industry. Mm -hmm. I think at this stage, and this is going to be selfish because it's going to be related to to, to our product, <laughs> but I think if I can make a magic wand, I want to reframe the conversation and reframe sort of the PR around SEO mm -hmm. and in particularly organic SEO. I think we've we've sort of lost the conversation on what it means from a traffic perspective because it's just, you know, and, and granted in some cases it's easier to 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 buy than to build. And and a lot of times you have to build a very disciplined organic SEO process. Historically, you had to in order for it to be effective. You don't have to do that anymore. And I think that's both the opportunity and the challenge that we have with e-com is we get to to we're an end of one company. You know, we don't have any peers doing what we are doing. So that's the opportunity. But the challenge is reframing the thought around why organic SEO matters so much. When 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 a lot of, you know, folks in marketing and, and, and in e-commerce have migrated more towards paid. I want more budget to throw towards paid. Let's let's walk that back a little bit and have a and have, you know, a, a more in-depth conversation around it. That's my that's my magic wand to ask. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, as natural language processing advances, and, and I know that's that's the magic sauce is building an algorithm 
and that's what ecom is is it, it it's it's using natural language processing and ai to to really uh, optimize and automate that whole process but as as it progresses as you said we're only less than a year into chat gpt and some of the things that open ai has unleashed uh, on public and in business what emerging capabilities are you most excited about and how uh, might they impact business? I think it's going to be all around tethering natural language processing with with unique data sets. Mm. You know, we've seen some some really great companies over the past couple of years be able to create the plumbing between data sets, okay? And that's that was sort of step one. Step two is now going to not only connect and plumb these data sets together, but then apply generative natural language processing to it. So you see some examples, uh, some emerging examples that I see right now are in, in vector databases where these are really intelligent mm. boutique language models that companies are using for internal resources, for HR onboarding. It's kind of like an Ask Jeeves, but it's only the information it's trained on is only relevant to, to the data that that is conversationally going to be relevant. And it's really interesting because there's a lot of internal use cases for that, as well as customer-facing opportunities. You know, what we've seen with companies like Tidio, I mean, who've built chatbots for websites and done a really good job at that, you know, these are really macro responses that it's trained on. It's recognizing some keyword input. It's giving you a canned macro response back. And I think the next iteration of that is to have these really intelligent chatbots that reside on websites that that interact with us at a more personal level that can not only curate relevant information, but but also take us right right where we want. So for instance, you know, the ability to get on Domino's Pizza and potentially, uh, you know, just saying, hey, I, I, I'm ready to order a pizza, right? I want a large pepperoni and banana pepper. And this is my address. You know, you can largely do that by signing in, by going through the, the the prompts that have already been created on the website. But there's a much faster, much more efficient, much more customer-focused way to achieve this through, through some of these vector databases. That's really, really interesting. Beyond that, I think, you know, what we've been able to demonstrate with Ecom is is just apply an algorithmic layer of natural language on top of some really interesting data sets um, to be able to automate a lot of processes, to be able to build a bridge between, hey, these data and analytics are telling us either where we're excelling or where we're coming up short. But then obviously, if it tells you where you're coming up short, that that leaves a burden of being able to, to correct or cure that. And, and that's where AI can help fill that, fill that void. So uh, that's really where I see the most sort of momentum taking us over the next 12 to 24 months. This market moves so fast that it, we may be laughing at the 12 month estimation when it's here in three. All right. So, yeah. Well, just tagging off that question, I want to talk and get your opinion on the multimodal AI. So how do you think multimodal AI, which is integrating text, voice, and vision or images or video how do you think that's going to shape business experiences in the years ahead? Uh, I mean, you're talking about, you know, really getting into, I think it ties really well into this hyper-personalization. Mm. You know, as as shoppers, as 
learners, as consumers of information, multimodal allows businesses to be able to serve up various formats that could be more appealing to one user versus another. So instead of taking, you know, from a macro level of, hey, I've got, you know, clothing line that you know, is only children's, getting it down to, hey, we know that people that that buy our children's clothing, you know, are driven more by, you know, picture or video response type thing. And we're already seeing a lot of trends in e-commerce that are showing that video is starting to convert buyers at a really, really high level. There's obviously some cost and, and some constraints in that right now that we'll, we'll have to level out in the near term. But I think video is a very powerful um, shopping tool mm. for consumers. It's all about the consumer experience. And so we've we've moved from, you know, the first wave was was all sort of text and a little bit of, of image. And now the second wave has incorporated image with the text. And I think this, this next wave is going to be all about combining video, high quality, streaming video with with high quality images with with also high quality text that all play off of one another to create an experience for either a user or a buyer and it's just it's a it's it's more immersive and it it more appeals to the emotional experience that i think consumers and users of you know any type of product it could be a software that's what we want we don't want this off the shelf you know Genic spreadsheet kind of experience. There needs to be some personalization to 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 what we're doing, and I think that going into multimodal is going to be fascinating to see. It's just going to allow the digital experience to become a lot more immersive. All right, I'm going to start zooming out here, and we're going to get into the organizational psychology world a little bit. But before we do, I think a good bridge to that is. As a business leader, as someone who works in this space, who raises money for this type of technology, I'd love to get your perspective on this because this is the scuttlebutt no matter where you go. How do you think evolving natural language processing capabilities may disrupt certain jobs or workflows? And more importantly is how should businesses prepare for that? Because there's not going to be any stopping it, but how how should businesses be thinking and looking at it from your, just in your opinion? I think you need to find, find some use cases and, and deploy those use cases organizationally to begin building trust because I think trust and authenticity plays a really big role in, in not only what we're trying to achieve from our business, but for what businesses need to, to experience. First of all, you need to be able to trust that the natural language, the NLP, is producing you know high quality, trusted content. Okay, mm. it's really good right now. Foundation models are getting better. I, I see that being a, a hurdle that's that's overcome pretty easily. <clears throat> but you also have to build the trust of the people on your team. You know, as a you know as a CEO, I can't replace my people with AI because my people have talents that far exceed just the computational capability of, of artificial intelligence. Businesses, other businesses, and those that we sell to are going to have the same experience. They're going to have to have people. And so they have to, or I think they're going to have to build trust with, with, with people internally to embrace these tools, to figure out where the use cases are that drive meaningful results. It's not to say that someone has to go at first all in, you know, 
I think this is an this is an apple that can be eaten one bite at a time over you know a period of time. I think what we've seen this year, at least in the public markets, that the, those those businesses that have made significant strides and contributions with their investments in artificial intelligence have certainly been rewarded for being forward thinking and and sort of leaning into this because you're absolutely right. We're not going back to a pre-AI era. I mean, we are we're here and we're only getting started. So how do we live with it, right? And and it's kind of the internet 2.0. And it's interesting to me to see sort of some some of the comments that are being made right now because it's almost like generative AI was shot out of this cannon nine months ago. Now that the dust has settled, now that a lot of people have, have had an opportunity to 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 try it out or to test it, you're starting to see some, you know, some negative feedback. Oh, well, I asked Chad GBT to do this and it couldn't, and sort of, you know, the 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 negative echo chamber is has started to getting louder. But what people aren't realizing is that that's a tool for a very sort of limited use case, right? And no tool is perfect. But what's being built on the peripheral are things like e-com that are, are, are disrupting in terms of tying in data with natural language processing. There's other tools out there that are making meaningful contributions to, to you know, that are outcome oriented, whether they're impact OPEX, anything at, 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 at the operational level, commercial level, like there's really, really cool software being built. But what it's taken for brands to embrace this and for companies to embrace it is a certain level of trust. And you, you know, in any market, you're going to have some early movers, you're going to have some early naysayers. And then once there's a comfort level established and what that comfort is, is, is trust, then you see the middle part of that market start to start to move a little bit. I think, and this is just my estimation, that the early movers in AI are going to get exponentially more rewarded mm. than the late movers in AI. Yeah, because the technology operates at an order of magnitude from a scale standpoint, and it's not a relative uh, longitudinal, you know, movement here. Your early movers are going to get such an advantage; they're going to get such a head start on sort of understanding what these use cases are, deploying these use cases, and then and then seeing the benefits. That by the time the late movers enter the game, it's not it's not where a situation where patience is going to be rewarded. I think. I think. You, you're going to have to make some decisions pretty quickly and and come to terms with, hey, you know, this is a really beneficial tool and we need to figure out how to how to bring it in. Yeah, that kind of ties to my next question. And that's a really good point because I think it's important anytime you're certainly you're in the kind of startup disruptive space, like that's what you live and breathe every day. But I also think too is what advice have you learned? What are the lessons learned for for other startups or maybe even existing businesses looking to disrupt established industries with new technologies like AI? What advice would you give and what are the lessons you have learned and are learning? You know, I think, in a, uh, you know, what I would consider AI, a AI has is closer to being a wartime marketplace than a peacetime market. So let's let's address that question sort of with a with a with a pre AI and, and a post AI. So what I would say pre AI is sort of peacetime market, and to be a startup to come in and disrupt with a software is is difficult as it is. It's it's the hardest thing that a lot of people will ever do. Now we have AI, 
And and AI has has created a little bit of chaos and frenzy in the marketplace. And we've moved from this peacetime market to a wartime market. In my opinion, for anyone that's considering it, there is there's never been a better time to be a startup where seemingly most every company that I think businesses are hearing from right now or being solicited from are, are startups or early stage companies. Mm. I think that startups also have an advantage in a certain way in a marketplace like this, because, you know, think about, think about this and, and, and I'll use just a personal example. Bottled water comes out, right? And there's, uh, you've got brands like Evian and uh, some others that are on the shelf. And then we'll call those the startups. And then your legacy companies like Coca-Cola, you know, they go out and they acquire the Dasani brand and they start putting it on there. I'm still going to equate Dasani to Coca-Cola, right? And to a large part, to a certain part of the market, that's appealing. But I want the company that's only focused on water. That that's all that they do. It's not just, I don't want the brand that's part of a larger portfolio. And, and that's where I think a lot of startups have an advantage right now is that, and we've seen this, there is a far greater appetite for enterprise players to have conversation right now with specifically focused startup or early stage companies that can do something that the legacy enterprise players are just going to be a lot slower to adopt. I mean, this is the, this is the perfect David Goliath moment when it comes to AI and building an AI. We know that our large incumbents they're slow. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to take advantage of that. That's good. I want to wind down with, I think, an important question that I'd love to, to get your, your input and your perspective on. Writerly slash e-com and, and any other products that comes out of it, that it seems to have an unconventional startup culture. And I've observed this personally myself. Can you talk about some of the creative aspects and why diversity is really important to you? Like you seem like the kind of person that could pull talent from anywhere in the world. And I know you have to a certain degree, but also you you, you have an intention to go, you know, we're a Nashville and Brooklyn based AI startup and we're we're proud of that. We're we're not a Silicon Valley startup and we're not taking necessarily Silicon Valley talent and money and everything, but what talk to me about that, that unconventional startup culture and why that's so important? Well, that's that question has so many layers, and I'll try to address as, as many as I can. It's a great question. So I'm I'm in I'm in Tennessee, right? And when the company was moved from London, and we'll sort of circle back to where the conversation began. I made the decision to move the company from London to the U.S. last summer. And Nashville, to me, was the perfect place. Number one, it's a couple-hour drive for me. It's easy to get there straight down I-40. It's, it's an emerging metropolitan area with a lot of talent that is coming in from all over the, the world. But... In building a software company that we wanted to intentionally be different. And we see not being based in Silicon Valley as a feature and not a bug. 
it allows us to leverage creativity. We're in a city where we're surrounded by artists, by writers, by, you know, people that create. These are just creators. And that's what we wanted to build at Riderly is we wanted to build a software company that that took that mentality of creator first, where our software needs to have an elegant design. You know, obviously it needs to work and it needs to work at a high level, but it needs to be additive from a design standpoint. We talk a lot about our software and, and our company in general. We don't want it to taste like chicken, you know, because everything that's that's bland will taste like chicken at some point. And that's what we see when we look out at a lot of these 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 other software players. And we want to be intentionally different. And I think Nashville made a lot of sense. It's where a lot of our early talent was from. It's got a great vibe. Brooklyn came on shortly thereafter, simply because a lot of our developers and engineering team were in the, the Williamsburg area of Brooklyn, which is also an emerging borough. And we just lean into that. You know, Nashville and Brooklyn are very similar. They have a lot of grit to them. They have a lot of of creator artistic elements and that's who we are i mean that's in our that's our dna and we absolutely love it because we are different and i think because we're different we're recognized for thinking differently and approaching the problems that we're solving a little differently we're not beholden to any customs or sort of we'll call them social norms of Silicon Valley. We have, we are VC backed. We have a fantastic cap table that acknowledges that we have the ability to build really elegant solutions for the spaces that we're going after. And they want to, they want to foster that creativity. They don't want to hinder it. So we're given flexibility and we're given uh, the opportunity to go out and look for team members that are not only talented and can, and can fulfill their roles, but but they bring other elements, softer skills to the team. Like we, we we've got people on the team that are you know former former athletes that are musicians that are painters that are are pilots. Like it's just it's really interesting when you start talking and getting to know the people behind the company that. They're driven by things other than just coming to work. They see the world a little bit differently. They see the beauty in a lot of things, and they want to they want to express that 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 beauty through through software. And and you know we're we're a team of artists, and software's our our medium. I love that, and I think I've always said that diversity in the workplace is where creativity and innovation comes from. Right? Like you get everybody in the room, and they all look the same, come from the same culture speak the same language, use the same acronyms, There's you're not going to get a lot of disruption out of that necessarily or creativity for the most part. So I love that. Well, this has been fascinating, John. Thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. If people want to know more, it's writerly, right? W-R-I-T-E-R-L-Y.ai and ecom.ai, E-K-O-M.ai. Anything else? Really appreciate you having me on. Always great to, to to catch up and to talk to you and look forward to to hearing once you get through final edits. Awesome. John, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Bob.